Hope everyone's doing well. Let me join with Tony in welcoming everyone. Uh, if you're a guest today, June and I are going to be greeting uh, right back here out these doors. And we would love to meet you. I know if you parked out front, that'd be a little difficult to come. But if you'd be willing to come and say, hey, we're guests today, uh, we would love to have the opportunity to say hi to you. And, and let me say, boy, it was just a joy to see the kids down front. Wow. Uh, I mean, that is not just the future of the church, but that's the present church. Uh, the incredible job Hudson did, and I thought it was so cool that he thought about bringing his dad up here and letting him participate. Uh, boy, Hudson, great idea there. Uh, and, and I've got to share one about Benton uh, Bowman. Uh, here a few weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, I get this uh, text message from Eric and in it, Benton had been assigned a responsibility at school. And the responsibility was to draw a picture of one of your heroes. And he drew me. I mean, you, you want to talk about incredible. I get this, this beautiful picture, and, and he says, you know, Mr. Less, and he spelled my name right, L-E-S-S, Mr. Less. <laughs> Mr. Less is my hero because he preaches the Word of God. I mean, I love our kids. They're always, I mean, I get high fives from them when they're heading back to kids' church. And uh, I'm just so grateful for all the families and children that we have here at Hendersonville. Uh, we are jumping into our second character in our series on journey life, lessons from uh, Old Testament people of faith. And, and today we began a series on uh, one of the most challenging, interesting and difficult books of the Old Testament, the book of Job. And, and I want to give a, a shout out to Brian Holloway. He, he's the one that does all the graphics for us and uh, my sermon presentations. And boy, I thought he did a great job on this character of, of Job. Uh, a lot of us know a little bit about Job. Uh, perhaps you've tried to read through the book of Job and you're like, wow, this is a little tough. Uh, you know, what's going on with this Old Testament character and in this story about him? The first thing I need to do right off the bat is to explain a little bit about how the Hebrew Old Testament is set up, okay? We have our English Bibles. But our English Bibles, if you've ever studied Hebrew, are not like the Hebrew Bibles. Now, we have the same books, but they're not arranged the same way. Okay? I mean, in, in the Tanakh, they call their Bible, Jews do, the Tanakh. Okay? And each of those letters, major letters up there, uh, describes one part of their Bible, what we call the Old Testament. The T in Tanakh stands for Torah. It's the law. It's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Okay? That's the Torah, the T in Tanakh. And then you have the N, and the N is the Nevi'im. And it simply means the prophets. And it deals with books of the Old Testament that we normally think of historical books. You know, I mean, Joshua and Judges and First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. And we're like, those are not the prophets. Those are the historical books. Uh, you know, the problem that a lot of us have is that a lot of us, especially if you're my age and older, you divide the Bible up because of the influence of one man, a man by the name of Jewel Miller. Y'all remember Jewel Miller film strips? And, and if you ever watched the Jewel, and I did many times growing up as a kid, 
I mean, as a kid, you wanted to be the guy who advanced the film. I mean, the record would go ding, and then you'd advance. Boy, that was just so cool when you were like five years old, at least when I was five years old. And, and Jewel Miller kind of divided the Old Testament, the New Testament, in ways that helped us understand it, but really didn't reflect the Old Testament quite as well. The third part, the K up there, stands for Ketuvim. And it simply means the writings. And, and so when you go back to the Old Testament, you find that they don't divide it quite like we do. In fact, the Ketuvim is divided into four sections. You have the poetic books, which is Psalms, Proverbs, and Job. And then you have the scrolls. Uh, Stan, how do you pronounce it? Megalot? Megalot up there? That sounds pretty good. That sounds good. All right. Which simply means the scrolls. Song of Solomon, Ruth, Lamentations, Jeremiah, Ecclesiastes, and Esther. You have one book of prophecy, Daniel. Daniel is in the uh, Ketuvim. And then you have, they call it the history books, but it's the last books. In Hebrew, only two books. Ezra and Nehemiah is one book. First and Second Chronicles is one book. And so if you have a Hebrew Old Testament and you turn to the last book in it, which is actually at the beginning, again, you've got to realize Hebrew, you start in the back, that's where Genesis is, and you get to the front, which is the back of their Bible, and that's where First and Second Chronicles are. And so very strange to those of us who are Christian, but you need to understand that because of where Job falls. Job falls in the poetic books. And you have to ask yourself, what, what do you mean the poetic books? It's, it's poetry. It's like the Psalms. Uh, when, when you open the book of Job, chapters 1 and 2 are in prose. They look like ordinary writing. But then when you get to chapter 3, you start breaking it up into individual verses. You get to the end of Job, halfway through the last chapter, and you go back to prose. But everything in between is poetry. Hebrew poetry. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I, I'm not big into poetry, even English poetry. I mean, I had to learn some when I was, you know, in high school. I can only quote one of them. Any of y'all quote this? One that opera with the sure assault of the truth, the march with bothered in the root and bothered every vein and switch liqueur of which vertu engendered was the fluid. Y'all remember that? Right? How many of y'all had to learn that? Okay. Dance, me and you, the only ones, brother, looks like. If you don't know, that's the opening lines of Canterbury Tales in Old English, which is probably why I remembered it. Uh, but, but these books are different in that Job is Hebrew poetry. And Hebrew poetry is really difficult, in fact, impossible to put into English form. And so it's set off so that we know it's poetry, but we really can't read it as Hebrew poetry. The other thing about the Old Testament, about the book of Job, is that it falls within three wisdom books. There are three wisdom books found in the writings. Uh, again, a couple of them in the poetry, one of them in uh, a, a different section of it. Uh, the first book is the book of Proverbs. And Proverbs is all about wisdom. And you have to understand this if you're going to look at the book of Job. Uh, basically, the book of Proverbs says everything's black and white. You only have two types of people in the world. You have the wise person and you have the foolish person. Okay? And, and all the way through the book of Job, it describes either you're living life like a wise man 
or wise woman or a foolish man and a foolish woman. Notice Proverbs 3.35. The wise inherit honor, but fools get only shame. Proverbs 10.35, one of the Proverbs of Solomon. A wise son brings joy to his father, but a foolish son brings grief to his mother. And what you have in the Proverbs, and you've got to understand this, okay? It is essential, or else your theology is going to mess up. The book of Proverbs, these, this wisdom literature, is the general moral principles. Notice the language I'm using there. General moral principles by which the world operates. In other words, you get up early in the morning, you work hard all day, you save your money, you'll end up being a wealthy person. I mean, Proverbs basically says that. You sleep in late, you, you, you act lazy all the time, then you're going to go hungry. Proverbs says that, okay? And so Proverbs presents these general principles. Here's one, for instance. Start children off on the way they should go, and even when they are old, they will not turn from it. I mean, basically, hey, raise your children in a Christian family, be a part of a church, get them involved in the youth group, have them there every time the doors are open, and when they get old, they, they won't stray away from it. Only problem is, we know that sometimes they do. Right? I don't know how many times I've heard parents say, you know, you know, the Bible says if you raise up your kids in the way they should go, and me and my spouse, we tried to do that, and, and yet they just kind of veered off into left field. And I've seen it throughout my ministry. And you go, what's going on here? And what you have to understand is that Proverbs is a general principle, not an absolute truth. Why? Because we live in a fallen world. Look at this one. Uh, well, I'll come to it in a minute. Second one is Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is the book that explains how everything kind of goes off track sometimes. Uh, Solomon, of course, wrote many of the Proverbs. I believe he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. Some debate about that, but I believe he did. And, and basically, he says in this that uh, the reality that there are exceptions to the general moral principles, I mean, it, it just works that way in our world. Even though Proverbs says, here's the way it's supposed to work, Ecclesiastes says sometimes it doesn't work that way. Look at this example from Ecclesiastes. In this meaningless life, I love the way Solomon says this. He says, boy, there are just some things doesn't make sense. Look what he says. In this meaningless life of mine, I've seen both of these. I've seen the righteous perish in their righteousness. And the wicked living long in their wickedness. Now, if you go to the book of Proverbs, Proverbs says that's not supposed to happen. But Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, but we all know that sometimes, not as a general rule, as a general rule, it's true. But sometimes the righteous perish and the wicked live long lives. Look at this one. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. Notice that, with a promise. So that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. In other words, you obey your parents, you honor your mom and dad, you do what you're supposed to do, and, and there's a promise from God, in general, you'll live a long time. 
But the promise is a general principle. We've all seen that it doesn't always work, right? My, my brother Rex, and you've heard me speak on occasions, he was the firstborn, five years older than me. Grew up in the church just like I did, baptized at a young age, loved God. Went to Freed Hardman. I was down at Freed this week, met some classmates of his. He graduated in the first senior class. First senior class. He was, he was the president of the first senior class at Freed Hardman. He immediately got a job working over in Somerville, Tennessee. And, and, and part-time, he was the youth minister there. And he and I were so excited. He said, by the way, when you come up here, I, I want to invite you over so that you can speak to the youth group there at the Somerville Church of Christ. And, 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 and by the way, one of these days I plan to start a business and I'm going to support you full-time in ministry so that you won't be dependent upon a church, you know, having to provide your, your finances. And boy, we had all of these dreams and all, the, all these plans. I mean, when I was a teenager in high school, he'd buy me my first commentaries and my first Greek works. I mean, he would bring them from Fried Hardman. And boy, I'd just sit there in my, in my little room back in the back of the house and I'd read them and I was just so excited about ministry and he was excited about ministry and, and he graduated from college and, and then he married his, his, his college sweetheart who's wonderful, wonderful Christian lady. I was in their wedding and then six weeks later he dies in an airplane crash. Elder of the church flying the plane. Imagine the devastation of that little congregation in summer. And you don't think that me and my parents asked this question, but God, you made a promise. How do you deal when what you think God ought to be doing in the world is not what God is doing in the world? And that's why we have the book of Job. You see, Job comes along, and, and Job explores the reality of the exceptions. In other words, Job says, I know this is what Proverbs says, but Job is an exception, and not just an exception, but an extreme case. Job is this poetic book written to say, can I explain to you that sometimes it doesn't work the way Proverbs says it will. Sometimes your life comes crashing in, and you don't know why. You ever felt that way? I think most of us have at some point in time. I mean... All at once, my sister-in-law is a widow at 22 years old. What's with that? I mean, what, what, what happens when a dad of three small children all at once catches the flu and dies? What's going on with that? What happens when you, you, you've got this great job and all at once your job's gone and, and you can't find a job? What in the world's going on with that? And you, you just pile them up. And at some point in time, you look up at God and go, wait a minute. This is not the way it's supposed to work. Job tries to explore that. It begins with this way. In the land of Uz, there was a man whose name was Job. Uz is somewhere in the east. We don't know where. We don't know when. As one commentator says, it's kind of like in a land far, far away a long, long time ago. That's the way the book begins. Okay? And there was this guy named Job. Uh, Eob, uh, if you pronounce it in Hebrew. Uh, this man was blameless, upright, he feared God, and he shunned evil. This guy was super righteous. Not just super righteous, you're going to see how righteous here in just a second. And not only that, he's wealthy. Which, by the way, is the way Proverbs kind of depicts the scene. You do what I command you, God will say this in the book of Deuteronomy, and I will bless you. 
And look at Job. He's blessed. He's got seven sons and three daughters. Now, these are all numbers of perfection. You need to see that. Seven sons, seven days of creation. Seven is the number of perfection. But three daughters added to seven makes ten. Ten is the number of perfection as well. In other words, he's got the perfect family. Not only that, he owns 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels. Man alive, y'all. I don't know what car you got, but imagine if you had 3,000 of them. I mean, I need a fast camel today. No, I want a slow, I want a warm camel today. It's cold outside. 3,000 camel, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, large number of servants. And then the book of Job says this, he was the greatest man among all the people of the east. East is where all the wise people come from. Three wise men in the birth of Jesus, where do they come from? They come from the east. And so you look at this and you go, wow. And then he says, by the way, let me tell you how incredible Job was. His sons and daughters loved to get together. Anytime they'd get together, they'd have a big party. And, and whenever they had a party, when the period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. In other words, Job says, all right, y'all been eating, you've been drinking. I mean, we need to make sure you've not sinned. He purifies them. And then look at what he does. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them thinking... Perhaps my children have sinned, cursed God in their hearts, just to make sure I'm going to sacrifice for all of them. And this was his regular custom. Wow. And then you have scene two. Scene two changes from the earth up to heaven. And in scene two, the angels are presented themselves before the Lord, and Satan... Interesting, because in, in the Hebrew, it's the Satan. The Satan also came with them. The Lord said to the Satan, where have you been? Uh, where have you come from? And he answered from roaming throughout the earth, going back and before it. And, and so all at once you go, what in the world's going on with these angels appearing in heaven before God? And, and who or what is this Hasatan that appears before God? And so I want to ask Stan to come up, if he would. Uh, Stan has been working on this for, what, Stan, three years, four years? Four years. And so, uh, just grab over here, if you'll grab this mic here. Oh, you're mic'd. Oh, okay, I didn't notice that. I just thought that was something coming out of your head there. Okay. No. I just like wearing a mic around. It makes me feel important. All right. Uh, and I hope this is probably messing somebody up. So let me... But anyway, Stan, uh, you've been working on your PhD now. Uh, it's, it's under the direction of Rodney. Uh, one of our most distinguished scholars in our fellowship and a great blessing to this church. So if you would, a couple of questions. What's going on with these quote-unquote angels that come up before God? What, what is the writer of Job depicting? Well, get comfortable. We need about an hour. No, I've, I've got a little outline to see if we can make this make sense in the time that we have. So this term is actually called the divine council or the heavenly council. Okay. Um, and what, what I think we oftentimes get confused about is we, we pause and we say, like you have this morning, what in the world's going on? I don't understand this. Some people might even, if it wasn't in the Bible, just dismiss it and say that it's probably not <clears throat> necessarily true or it's some sort of metaphor for something else. But let's just rewind a second and take a breath and realize that in the Hebrew Bible, this is, this is a common thread. And keeping it in Job this morning, 
what we see is we see Yahweh created beings that have free will, just like we do, except they're in the heavenlies. They're not, they're not on the earth only. And we, if, we, if we have a problem with that, I think we have to stop and say, well, why can there not be other co-workers with God besides us? That's what Jesus asks us to do. That's what ultimately we are going to do, which is where I'll have some scripture here in a minute to tell us that. And so it really shouldn't be a foreign concept. It's just we kind of, they're out of sight, out of mind most of the time. We see Gabriel come and talk to Mary or Gabriel go and talk to, to Zechariah, and we're like, oh, okay, yeah, sure, that's fine. But what are they doing the rest of the time? Well, they're, they're, they're doing things. And in, in Job, especially in chapter 1, verse 6, you have the assembly of these, of these beings, and you have the Satan come with them, and they present themselves before Yahweh. And so <clears throat> it's, it's God's created beings ruling with him, okay? And what, what I think I, I wanted to point out today was just that when God interrogates Job, which I know we're jumping around a little bit, but if you go to chapter 38, verses 4 through 7, it's when God turns the tables on Job and says, okay, where were you when I did all these things? And we notice that these ben ha'alahim are there again. The sons of God is the term that keeps getting used. Yeah, we translate angels. <clears throat> well, but we, angels is not a good translation. Right. Some, especially in the Hebrew. That's, yeah, and that's, that's kind of the New Testament translating it backwards into the Hebrew Bible. And really the Hebrew Bible doesn't translate it that way. But that's, that's what's happened over all of, all of the time. So long story short... God says to Job, where were you when I was measuring the foundations of the world? Where were you when I separated the waters from the land? And then he says that the sons of God were there and rejoiced with him. They were, they were, they were witnesses to what the Father, the Son, and the Spirit were making. So we, we, have, to, we have to take notice of that in order to, to really understand how it comes up later. And then if we look at other places... Like Paul in Romans 9 is quoting from Hosea, where Hosea says, you know what, the sons of God, let's not get hung up on the gender right now, that's another conversation. It's more of the status, it's more of the position. Hosea says that Israel are the sons of God. And if we start thinking about that, we think about, well, of course, God's chosen people to work along with him for the benefit of the nation so that they will be called. That makes total sense. The only difference is you have an imager in heaven in the heavenlies that does things with Yahweh. You have imagers on the planet that do things. But we're both doing the same function, which is that we're, we're presenting Yahweh to whatever he's asked us to present him to, right? And then you have Jesus as the son of God, which we think as father and son, and that's fine. But also it has a secondary meaning, more important meaning really, which is the absolute perfect imager in human a human imager of what Yahweh has always asked from the beginning for humans to do. And then this is where it gets interesting. Galatians 4, 6, Paul talks about because we are the sons of God. Now, he's not talking about just men. He's saying on everybody. He, now, Jesus' church is the sons of God, which also equates to Israel. And then fascinating, probably the most, to round this subject out before you ask the second question, is Hebrews chapter 2, verses 7 through 9. Jesus was made a little lower than the angels, okay, which is how we get this backwards translation to the Hebrew Bible, a little lower than the angels for a while. And then we inherit what he has gained. And we will be at the level he's at, which is now above those 
sons of God because we've become the new sons of God, which, which is human. And 2 Timothy tells us that. We will also reign with Jesus. Well, what in the world does it mean to reign with Jesus if none of this is actually accurate or correct? Well, it means everything. It means that whatever God does after he makes everything right, whatever the future looks like that goes on, we are now in those positions that in the Hebrew Bible are these beings that are in those positions. And humans in Christ are the new sons of God that are reigning with him on wherever creation goes after he sets everything right. All right, second question. Who in the world is this Hasatan? which unfortunately in our Bibles is translated as a name. Yeah, Satan. proper noun. Yeah. yeah, but in Hebrew is not. Right, and so this is always challenging for Bible scholars. You don't want to sound condescending and make anybody think, well, okay, I've learned all this incorrectly, and because I don't know the Hebrew, I don't even really know what the Bible's saying. It's not, it's not that bad. If you've got a study Bible, though, you'll notice in the footnotes, you'll find this stuff. It's not, it's not like this is just secret talk that only scholars know. Your study Bibles are going to give you the things behind the, the, where the little letters are next to the words. And it will probably be next to Satan in some of the Old Testament texts and also possibly in some of the New. But you did a great job when you said earlier, it, it is the Satan. And if you take Satan, it is adversary or opposer. Okay. Okay, so like John talking this morning about the teams that are going to play later today, they're the Satan of each other. They're, the opposition is the other team so that the football can only go you know, one way or the other, and they're trying to prevent that from happening. If we have that in our minds, then Scripture starts to make a whole lot more sense. Because we look at, at Job and we say, okay, here comes this accuser or this opposer. Well, accuser or opposer of what? Of God saying, I'm going to let humans do what you guys do. Oh, no, you're not. We don't want that. This, at least this being doesn't want that. So he's been roaming back and forth on the earth to try to see how this project's going. And all he wants to do is discredit God's human creations. And so he, what about Job? Job's a blameless man who's upright and fears the Lord. And so, well, we'll, let, well let's be in, in opposition to Job and see if we can get him to fail. <clears throat> Other places, if you're thinking, well, okay, maybe, but how can you prove that? And that's what we always try to do. Good Bible scholars are always going to take Scripture to interpret scripture. All right, so in, in a minute or less, check this out. Go to, go to Numbers 22, verse 22. There in the Hebrew and in your English Bibles in a footnote, it will show you that the donkey that Balaam was riding saw the angel of the Lord standing in the middle of the road and decided not to go, even though Balaam's whipping him like crazy. And it says the angel of the Lord is a Satan, is the Hasatan right. in that Two, Well, yeah. yes. Actually, it doesn't have the article, but it says it just says a Satan. So a, a opposition or a adversary to be, being able to go down the road. If I tried to go out those doors and somebody steps in the aisle and prevents me from doing it, Hasatan. Can't get to the doors. Can't get outside. All right, well, you stop and say, okay. Well, but, but it's a big okay because that's Yahweh himself. Right. That's God being called a Satan. A, a Satan, all right? So it can't be that he's being called the devil. That wouldn't, that wouldn't make any sense. If we go to 1 Kings 5, verse 4, and you've mentioned Solomon this morning a couple times, Solomon stands up and announces, hey, my dad, David, was unable to build the temple. There is no, Hasat, there is no Satan to prevent me from building the temple. 
Well, he's not saying there's no devil and that there's no, there's no bad person anymore. There's no bad being. He's saying there's nothing to prevent him from actually constructing it. But he uses that word. So what's happened is in the English is we filtered all that because we're afraid we'll confuse people. But actually, we're confusing them kind of more by, by doing that. And then if you keep going, you go to the New Testament, and you, know, you remember from my sermon on Matthew 16, Matthew 16 and Mark chapter 8, Jesus, right after Peter's confession, turns and says, get behind me, capital S-A-T-A-N, Satan. And people say, he, Jesus just called Peter Satan. No, he didn't. He's turning to Peter right after Peter makes this, this confession, saying, you're the Christ, you are the Messiah. And then he says... Basically, paraphrasing, we're going to protect you. We're going to keep what the Father has told you you need to be here to do from happening. And Jesus says, no, if you do that, you're in opposition to me and what the Father has sent me to do. So now you are a Satan to me. Now, how does all this get ratcheted up to what we think if somebody just stops you in an elevator and says, who's Satan? And you give them the classical answer. Well, it comes from Revelation chapter 20, verse 2, which is where we find at the very end of our of our Bibles, a succinct statement that says, by the way, the ancient serpent that, that tempted Eve and Adam, that was, that, was the, that was the Satan, that's the devil, and that's also how in the New Testament it's, it's, it's Satan. What's fascinating is it goes back to a, to a um, transliteration of the Hebrew word Satan, but in Greek it's actually Diablos. Right. That's why they put devil in there. And so it's devil, really. And even devil was a challenge, as Dr. Cloud reminded me this morning, to get from Diablos. But it's at least closer. It starts with the same letter. But, but Satan is actually a transliteration of the Hebrew word in the New Testament written in Greek. And it has carried over theology-wise. And then we're not saying that you can't tell anybody anymore who Satan is because you'll confuse people. But you can help them understand that that... Being is the ultimate adversary or opposer to Yahweh. And he wants to take down everybody who represents Yahweh and his good creation. He's he's the destructor, basically, of all the things God has made. All right. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Uh, I told Stan, I said, you got 10 minutes. And uh, he's like, right? And I'm like... (laughs) You know, how do you, how do you present all of this? But I think he's done just a marvelous job. And you see that in the rest of the story. Watch the story. Here is the opposer. Have you considered my servant Job, the Lord said? There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless, upright, a man who fears God, and he shuns evil. And then the opposer says, really? Does Job fear God for nothing? You see the opposer? The one who's trying to stop him? Have you not put a hedge around him in his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. You've made him wealthy. No wonder he serves you. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has. Let me tell you what he'll do. He's a human being. He'll curse you to the face. So God says, go after him. Go after him. Boy, you want to talk about a match. Today's game doesn't play, doesn't even get close to this one. Everything he has is in your power, but you can't touch his body. You can't touch his body. And then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, and it was on. And you read the first chapter, and you look. I mean, again, what what do you do when your life caves in? Job's life caved in. The Sabaeans made off with the oxen and the donkeys. 
And then the text says, lightning burned up all the sheep. Uh, by the way, all this is happening literally right after, one right after the other, same day. Not only that, the Chaldeans stole all your camels, and a windstorm hit your oldest son's house, and all your children are now dead. Now do you feel bad about your life? <laughs> I mean, you read this guy, all this in one day. And so the question is, what does Job do? What do you do when your whole world caves in? At this, Job got up, tore his robe, shaved his head, had a funeral. That's what you do. You tear your robe, you shave your head, you go into mourning. Then he fell to the ground in worship. Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I will depart. The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. And as William said in the song a while ago, may the name of the Lord be praised. And then the chapter ends with, and all this Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. And boy, you just want to go, just like God said it would, except the Satan is not finished. You see, if the, if the story ended right here, we could all say, that's the way it's supposed to work out. It doesn't end here. And next week, we look at what happens next. Because what happens next explores all the dark crevices of what happens to you when your world caves in. God, where are you? And we're going to explore that over the next few weeks. I don't know where you are right now. I don't know if you're right in the midst of one of these moments where your world has caved in. If so, let me tell you, God's still on your side. If you learn anything about chapter 1 is that God is still going, this is the team I'm rooting for right here. And I want you to know that God is still here for you. And that you need to follow Job in saying, blessed be the name of the Lord. And if we can help you struggle, because let me tell you, Job didn't do this all by himself. Job struggled through some horrible things that we're going to look at. We're here to help in that. And if we can, let us know how we can. Right now, as together we stand and sing.